Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your little helper Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features Parking Peril, Devilish Insanity, and Fatal Toys. Let's rip this wrapping paper off together. Spoilers, I got y'all movie reviews again. Number one, P2, 2007, directed by Frank Calphone. After staying late at the office, Angela ends up stuck in the parking garage after a parking attendant named Thomas kidnaps her. Thomas loves her and kills the guy that got handsy with her. He also kills a nice security guard. Angela kills Rocky, Thomas's dog, in self-defense. After finally getting the upper hand, Angela blows up Thomas and escapes. Thomas is the killer. If you would have told me that a movie about a woman getting stocked in a parking garage would have oodles of twists and turns, I wouldn't have believed you. You know I like to bring up crappy Hulu Into the Dark movies, so P2 is basically a good version of that movie Down, where the psycho traps a girl in an elevator with him on New Year's Eve. P2 is set on Christmas Eve, which makes it one of the best Christmas horror movies I've seen. You know what else makes it one of the best? Wes Bentley. Wes plays Thomas, the kidnapping lunatic. Should he have? In theory, no. Some creepy looking creeper should have been cast in the role of Thomas, but by some miracle, perhaps a Christmas miracle, Wes Bentley, an attractive, charismatic young man, was cast instead. I mean, Thomas is a kidnapper and murderer, but it's hard not to love the guy. He's a huge Elvis fan, loves his dog, doesn't want to kill Angela, likes to read, and is able to make an entire Christmas dinner with a microwave. He also viciously murders a dude that got handsy with Angie by running the guy into a wall with a car multiple times after beating the crap out of the pervert with the flashlight. If that's not a catch, I don't know what is. He does call Angie the C-word once, but that's only after she kills his dog. Pet warning, Angie graphically kills Thomas's dog, Rocky, in self-defense with a tire iron. It's intense. Jokes aside, Thomas is obviously evil. Bentley just makes him strangely lovable. His performance is the highlight of the movie and adds a nice comedic quality to what could have easily ended up a much less feel-good movie. Uh, I guess I stand by calling... P2, a feel-good movie. That's definitely a weird thing to say. If you're a horror fan, I think you'll end up agreeing with me. Replace Bentley with that vagrant that played the murderous Santa in Dial Code Santa Claus, 
and P2 would be an entirely different movie. I'm trying to think of another movie where the villain is likable in a similar manner. Home Alone? Since Thomas is obviously the best character in P2, how's Angela? Angela is played by Rachel Nichols. Her performance is solid, but boy, oh boy, is Angela the character a dummy. It's like she wants Thomas to keep her imprisoned in the parking garage forever. At one point in the movie, she gets away from Thomas. She's handcuffed, but is able to get her arms back to the front of her body. Perfect. All you have to do now, Angela, is hide out of sight of the cameras and wait for Thomas to come by. Then pop out and strangle him with the handcuffs. Easy peasy. Angela doesn't do this. Well, she doesn't do this until the end of the movie where she pretends to be passed out, stabs Thomas in the eye when he gets close, and then chokes him out with the handcuffs. You should have done that when I originally gave you the idea, Angela. I know, we wouldn't have a movie if her decision-making skills were better. At another point in P2, Angela has a fire axe and has taken out a bunch of surveillance cameras in the parking garage. This is an even better situation than last time. Okay, Angie, hide behind a column and give Thomas the old Jack Torrance when he walks by. Angie, Angie, what are you doing? Angela, stop. Why are you making your way towards Thomas's office? Wait for him to come to you, Angela, please. Okay, well, now you're in the office. He's not around. Lock yourself inside. Do anything but yell and smash the TV that's on with your fire axe. Damn it, Angela. I told you not to bury the axe into the television. There's no way Thomas didn't hear that. Well, since you done goofed, roll a perception check. What you get, Angela? A one? That's a critical failure. Thomas walks right up behind you and is able to stun you with a taser before you can react. Seriously, Angela must have a negative 10 modifier when it comes to perception checks because Thomas is constantly sneaking up on her. Besides Thomas and Angela, what other humans are in the movie? None other than Mr. Kim is in P2. Who's Mr. Kim? The best character in a Canadian sitcom about a Korean family that runs a convenience store called Kim's Convenience. He even has a speaking role where he talks about being late while in an elevator. There's also a nice security guard who I think dies off screen. I'm assuming he was dead before Thomas throws his body down an elevator shaft? What? Yeah, at one point Angela is chilling in an elevator, so Thomas starts flooding it with a fire hose and drops down the security guard to freak Angela out even more. Maybe the fall killed the guard? He does randomly have a head wound later on that wasn't visible initially. That's the worst instance of gore. All the other gore is way more intense than expected. The pervert's guts come out after he's pinned between a car and a concrete wall. Somehow, he's still alive after this, but not for long since Thomas rams the car into him two more times. The gore for this whole sequence is gnarly and came completely out of nowhere. The director, Calphone, had a hand in the new French extremity movement, so I should have predicted some crazy gore. The dog bites on Angela look amazing, and there is a lot of blood as Angela uses a tire iron to deal with said dog. The eye stab also looks decent. 
The score for P2 is terrible and dated. It liberally uses that old metal scraping noise that was prevalent in the 2000s. I loved the cheesy triumphant music played as Angela blows up Thomas and the angelic hymn that played as she finally escapes. The credits include happy pictures of Thomas, which is perfect. One thing that really bothered me was Angela's one-liner as she blows Thomas up. Throughout the movie, after Thomas kills someone, he says something akin to, Why'd you have to ruin Christmas? Angela should have parroted that line as she lit the gasoline. Definitely check out P2. It's insanely fun. Frank Calphone, the name I've probably mispronounced throughout this review, also directed the Maniac remake starring Elijah Wood, which I'll definitely be checking out after the holidays. Number 2, The Ginger Dead Man, 2005, directed by Charles Band. Gary Busey kills a girl named Sarah's dad and brother in a diner. Busey is executed by electric chair and turned into dust. He's then baked into a gingerbread man in Sarah's family's bakery. Busey, now a killer gingerbread cookie, kills two more people. A wrestling fan then eats the cookie's head, becomes possessed, gets pushed into a giant oven, and is baked alive. Later, during a bake sale, more gingerbread cookies open their eyes. Gary Busey is the killer. I knew this movie was going to be bad. I knew that. I'm not some rube. What I didn't know is exactly how depressingly terrible it was going to be. The Ginger Dead Man is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Well, kind of saw. The only copy of the movie I could find was in what looked like 360p. There's nothing better than watching an hour-long piece of crap that only has four pixels on the screen at a time. I guess it's only fitting that one of the worst movies I've ever seen was only watchable in potato quality. Before diving into the dumpster, I looked up who directed Ginger Dead. Charles Band is the director. That name sounded familiar. Turns out he directed the original Puppet Master, another movie that sucks. Should I have bailed on the movie after learning this fact? Yes. If a time traveler is listening to this, please go back to December 17th, 2019 at around 9.30 p.m. Central Time and threaten to slap me if I turn on Ginger Dead. I'll talk about the kills for a movie that includes a possessed, murderous, gingerbread man cookie. There are barely any kills in this movie. You get two kills right off the bat when Busey shoots dad and brother in the diner. The gunshots look fine, whatever, who cares. During the diner shootout, I did laugh when the dad, an older man, pulls out a knife, says he's had enough of this, and rushes at Busey before a shot is planted in his body. That made me laugh out loud. That's the only laugh of the entire movie, and it happened in the first minute. Once Busey is a killer cookie, he only technically kills two more people. He runs a car into another dad, pinning the dad between the car and a wall in a much lamer fashion than the similar kill in P2. Busey also sets a trap that lodges a knife in the daughter of that dad's head. For some reason, Busey only kills people of that lineage once he's a cookie. 
Sure, a wrestling fan who eats the killer cookie's head ends up possessed, but I'm not counting that as a Busey kill. They probably could have exercised Busey out of the wrestling fan, the best character in the movie who doesn't have nearly enough screen time, but why bother trying to save the only decent character when you can push him into a giant oven? Let's talk about the elephant in the room. The ginger dead man is a straight up ripoff of Child's Play. Just watch Child's Play if you ever think about watching The Ginger Dead Man. Do not watch The Ginger Dead Man. It is just bad. It is not fun. All of the acting is abysmal. At first I thought the acting was painfully bad due to everyone possibly being pornographic picture actors. I mean, that would make sense. Thing is, there's no nudity in The Ginger Dead Man, so I don't really have an explanation for why the acting is garbage. To be clear, I don't think horror movies need nudity, I just think the bad acting would have made more sense if the actors were only hired because they were cool with being in the nude or something. How are the effects? Uh, better than expected, but still bad. A woman's finger being cut off is probably the highlight of the gore effects, and it's not that exciting. Puppetry for the Cookie Man is bad. You can tell it's just a terrible rubber puppet. This would be fine if the movie had an inkling of self-awareness. I can only assume that the movie was written to be tongue-in-cheek, but it plain doesn't work in any way. The Ginger Dead Man is the longest 60-minute horror movie I have ever had the displeasure of sitting through. 60 minutes? Yep. It's listed as 70, but has 10 minutes of credits. This isn't even a feature film. Do not waste your time watching The Ginger Dead Man. The only positive thing I can say about it is that it's set in Waco, Texas. That's it. Charles Band should be locked away for his crimes against cinema. If there is a decent Charles Band film that you genuinely enjoy, let me know. Number 3, I Trap the Devil, directed by Josh Lobo. Matt and Kim show up to visit Matt's brother Steve on Christmas Eve without warning. Steve is acting strange. His wife and daughter died in a car crash some time ago. Steve says he's tramped the devil in his basement. He proves this by bringing Matt and Karen into the basement and showing them that the entity trapped down there can only be heard when a cross is removed from in front of the door the entity is behind. Matt and Karen are still skeptical. Karen goes down alone and is convinced it is the devil after speaking to the prisoner. Everyone starts going insane. Matt says he's going to release the prisoner and when Steven tries to stop him, Steve ends up stabbing Matt. Karen shoots and kills Steve. The devil says he can help Matt but Karen doesn't give in. Matt dies. Cops show up. Karen shoots one of the cops who shoots her back. They both die. The other cop lets the devil out. The devil takes the form of a little girl and leaves. Steve and Karen are the killers. When I first heard about this movie, I was excited. Then I watched a trailer which didn't impress me. I'm glad I stopped being a stupid idiot and watched this movie. I Trapped the Devil is a solid flick. The acting for the most part is great. The only actor that didn't wow me was AJ Bowen who played Matt. Bowen has been in a lot of horror movies, including Your Next and The House of the Devil. He's nothing special and is always one of the weaker performers in the movies he's in. 
If I could make one change to I Trap the Devil, I would cast someone else as Matt. Scott Poitras played Steve, and his performance as the grieving man who may have caught the devil and may just have a screw loose is great. Susan Burke is also strong as Karen. I just don't like Bowen. I think that might be because he looks like a more baby-faced version of Matt Berry, who is nowhere near as charismatic. I like Matt Berry. There isn't a ton of gore in I Tramp the Devil. The gun stab and gunshots all look fine enough. The best aspect of I Tramp the Devil is the basement where the devil is imprisoned. The basement is dark, tense, and chilling. I watched the movie on Hulu, which wasn't the best quality version. In the basement, it's hard to make out specifics since it's incredibly dark and bathed in red. Somehow this actually works for the movie. I want to say the wood grain on the cross and on the door that the devil was behind shifted throughout the movie. If this wasn't done on purpose and was just a figment of my imagination, I'd be surprised. The grain shifting is so simple and unnerving. The voice for the devil is perfect. I'd say the entirety of I Trapped the Devil's success depended on the basement and the devil's voice, and both of those aspects are spectacular. I have one gripe with the devil. At one point, the devil drops an F-bomb that feels completely out of place. Everything else about the devil's portrayal works. When the devil is finally released, the devil takes the form of a little girl. This is fine. I think I would have preferred it if the devil was a goat, took the form of the cop who released him, or simply wasn't even there when the door was opened. The little girl does work though. Kat says the devil is Jojo Siwa, whoever that is. Something about a side ponytail. Yes, the devil has a side ponytail. I think having nothing appear or the cop opening the door only to see an entity that looks exactly like him walk past would have been more unsettling. There's a part where Steve hallucinates that his wife is there. It's done in a very minimalistic way, which was really cool to see. A lot of the stuff in I Trap the Devil takes the simple approach and it works. Having a lot of Christmas lights throughout the house really helps with the atmosphere. It's dark with colorful glow. I don't know how Matt and Karen weren't instantly convinced the devil was behind the door after the whole remove the cross and put it back display. Right after that, I was like, yep, there's a devil behind that door. I Trapped the Devil is a solid movie. It's also technically a Christmas horror movie. I recommend checking this one out. Number 4, Windchill, 2007, directed by Gregory Jacobs. Emily Blunt decides to catch a ride home for Christmas with a guy she doesn't know. He doesn't have a name, so I'll call him Zoltan. Turns out Zoltan is a creepy stalker. While taking a scenic route, Zoltan ends up crashing after a ghost car runs him off the road. There are ghosts and time loops now. Zoltan ends up dying. Emily Blunt is able to escape the road. She now fondly remembers Zoltan, the creepy stalker, because trauma bonding. Bad driving and a psycho cop are the killers. I'm going with bad driving since Zoltan died from wounds he endured in the crash. All he had to do was pull over. Did I not go into detail regarding the psycho cop? Not psycho cop from the movie psycho cop. 
Windchill, for some unknown reason, includes a cop serial killer who became a killer ghost cop after some priests left him for dead after a bad car crash. That's the biggest problem with Windchill. The creepy stalker driver guy is enough for a movie. There's no reason to include a bunch of weird ghosts. Windchill is an odd movie. It starts off with Emily Blunt catching a ride with a complete stranger. From the get-go, Emily Blunt treats Zoltan like absolute garbage. She is unbelievably mean to this dude she just met who's going to drive her home for free. Emily Blunt, more like Emily Jerkface, am I right? She's so mean to Zoltan that it's jarring. So Emily is a monster, and Zoltan is a creepy stalker. Who's our protagonist? Emily, I guess? Zoltan, who's played by Ashton Holmes, stalked Emily. He creeped on her even when she was in her dorm. He found out where she grew up. He read her texts. He should definitely be the villain. I think the writers realized Zoltan was far too creepy, so they decided to write in a serial killer cop ghost. I don't know. None of this makes a lot of sense. Emily Blunt ends up falling in love with the gross stalker since they both had to deal with killer ghosts. Even after dealing with murderous ghosts, I don't think I'd be into some freaky stalker. For some reason, George Clooney decided to be an executive producer for Winchell. I'm assuming he didn't read the script. Not only is Emily Blunt's character the meanest of mean girls, she also walks into a convenience store barefoot. Why? Because her toenails were still drying. When was she painting those? Emily Blunt put her feet on a stranger's dashboard and started painting them. Emily and Zoltan are both freaks. Maybe they did deserve each other after all. So in Windchill, Emily has to face off against a stalker kidnapper, freezing cold, a murderous ghost cop, and time loops. That's four movies in one. Why not just focus on one, or maybe even two of those things? Windchill would definitely be a more interesting movie if the ghosts and time loops were dropped. Ixnay on the ghost days. A movie where a girl and a guy she finds out is a psycho stalker end up stranded in the cold and have to work together to survive is interesting enough. Spooky ghosts are completely unnecessary. How's the acting? Blunt and Holmes are fine. The gore? Some ghosts are a bit gory and look decent, I guess. You get electrocuted ghosts, car crash ghosts. If a horror movie includes Emily Blunt, I think I'll stay away. I like her in other movies. She's great in Edge of Tomorrow, Sunshine Cleaning, and The Devil Wears Prada. She just ends up in bad horror movies. Don't bother with Windchill unless you want to see Emily Blunt be ruthless to a complete stranger before she finds out the stranger is a psycho stalker. How'd y'all meet? Oh, he kidnapped me and forced me to fall in love with him on a long car ride in the snow. Come on, Zoltan, what were you thinking? Number 5, Midnight Kiss, 2019, directed by Carter Smith. A group of friends have been getting together at Joel's for New Year's Eve for seven years. The friends are Cameron, Joel, Hannah, Zach, and Ryan. Joel has a new fiancé named Logan. A masked killer murders Ryan after he says he can't make it to Joel's this year. 
The others make it to Joel's. Zack is killed by the masked man. Everybody else goes out to a club. Joel still seems into Cameron, who is no longer into Joel. Cameron meets a guy named Dante. The friends go back to Joel's. Dante randomly shows up. Joel murders Dante. The masked killer pops back up and terrorizes the friends. The friends work together to take out the killer, who is revealed to be Logan, who decided to kill them after being kissed and forgotten by Cameron during a past New Year's Eve. Joel shoots and kills Logan. Cameron finds out Joel killed Dante. Logan and Joel are the killers. Midnight Kiss is the January installment of Hulu Into the Dark. Alright, Hulark. Alright. You've put out a decently compelling movie. Is it a horror movie? Just barely. Midnight Kiss is stronger as a drama than a horror film. The strained relationships between the characters is much more interesting than the hoodie-wearing, horse-gimp-masked killer who turns out to have one of the weakest motives in all of slasher history. You decided to kill everyone because someone casually kissed you on New Year's Eve? Okay, Logan. That's hella stupid. I'd say the worst part of the movie is Logan. He's been in a few other movies I've seen, Assassination Nation and Worm, to be exact. He's annoying. Joel killing Dante out of nowhere was an interesting twist. Joel even has a motive, jealous rage. That's cool. One of the neatest parts of Midnight Kiss is that almost all of the characters are gay men. I like to see representation in horror movies. The only non-gay man character is Hannah. She's great and played by Aiden Meieri, who I thought I recognized, but that's probably because she looks like an amalgam of other celebrities. The longer you look at her, the more you'll see. The main character Cameron is played by Augustus Prue. He gives a solid performance and kind of looks like Junie from Spy Kids. Joel is played by Scott Evans, who's a more attractive version of that guy from Adam Ruins Everything. All the acting works. Midnight Kiss was directed by Carter Smith, who also directed The Ruins. I want to say I've heard good things about that movie, so I'll need to check that out. Back to the movie. How are the kills in this slasher? Not all that exciting. The body count is four. Two for Logan, two for Joel. Joel suffocates Dante with a cloth and shoots Logan with a gun. Uninspired, I know. Joel hasn't been planning his kills for years, though. Logan slashes Ryan's throat, then throws glitter on him. Okay. He also shoves a champagne bottle down Zack's throat, which should have been a neat kill, but the execution was lacking. The champagne bottle kill as a whole doesn't flow. There's just an issue with the editing there. Also, Logan, you had all this time to put a cool slasher costume together, and all you could scrounge up was black pants, a hoodie, and a stupid-looking gimp mask? Man, Logan, you're the worst. The gore that we get from those kills is solid. Throat slashes are boring, but it looks good. The gunshots aren't impressive. I swear water comes out of Logan's gunshot wound. The gore surrounding the bottle kill didn't work. As far as Hulark movies go, Midnight Kiss is pretty good. Does it hold a candle to non-Hulark slashers? Nah. Is it the best Hulark slasher? Maybe. There are only two, if I'm remembering correctly, Midnight Kiss and School Spirit, and Midnight Kiss is definitely more compelling. I guess School Spirit technically has 
stronger slasher elements, though. Do I recommend going out of your way to watch Midnight Kiss? No, this is a Hulark movie. That being said, it's one of the better Hulark movies you can waste your time watching. Number 6, Silent Night, Deadly Night, 5, The Toymaker, 1991, directed by Martin Kitrosser. A kid named Derek keeps receiving presents containing dangerous toys that end up killing or heavily wounding other people after they open them. A toy maker named Joe Petto is the main suspect. Joe shows up at Derek's house and kidnaps him. Jane and Noah, Derek's parents, go to rescue him. It's revealed that Joe's son, Pino, has been making the toys and killed Joe. Pino was created by Joe and is basically a giant toy with artificial intelligence. Pino kept trying to kill Derek since he wanted Jane to be his mom. Pino is destroyed by Jane. Pino is the killer. Why did I skip 3 and 4 and jump right to Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, The Toy Maker? I heard this was the strongest movie after 1 and 2. I also saw that Brian Usna had a hand in writing it with Kit Rosser, whose writing credits are long and impressive. I've seen quite a bit from Usna, haven't seen any of his reanimator sequels, and just found out he also directed the fourth Silent Night movie. I guess I'll be checking that out during the holidays next year. Screaming Mad George was the designer supervisor on Toy Maker. I've talked about him in the past. He's a special effects god who's worked on stuff like Predator, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, and Faust. Sure, Faust is kind of garbage, but the special effects in it are amazing. How are the effects in Toy Maker? They're solid. There's a Pokeball Santa that turns into a face hugger that latches onto Derek's stepfather figure, Tom. Tom freaks out like a dum dum and falls on a fire poker. Other murderous toys include army men, a tank, and a race car with spikes and saws that's accompanied by rock music whenever it's on screen. That pointy race car kills a dude that's trying to hook up with his babysitter girlfriend. I wanted more from the saw blade and spike adorned death machine. The babysitter was watching Derek. The dude and her decided to do some heavy petting in Derek's bed. It's weird. Get out of that kid's bed, you perverts. This heavy petting session happens at the same time as another sex scene with Jane and Noah. Toymaker cuts back and forth between the two scenes. Needless to say, a lot of intimacy is shoved in your face. Double sex scenes. Toymaker's got them. As kind of already mentioned, the dude and babysitter are interrupted by deadly toys. The babysitter is shot in the chest by the tank and soldiers. Somehow she tanks the tank shot that appears to be incredibly fatal. How she lives, I have no idea. Now that I think about it, Noah might be a killer. Noah knew about the fatal toys. He gives a motel owner a toy and says, it's to die for. The toy, a weird centipede that enters the motel owner's mouth as he's driving and eats his eyes from the inside. That was nuts. The effects are fun, even though some of them look a little cheesy. The gore involved is solid. The head wound from Tom falling on the poker, the babysitter's shot wounds, and the motel owner's demise all look good. The acting is hammy and bad. It works for this movie, though. Mickey Rooney plays Joe Petto. Maybe don't take your kids to Pedo's toy shop. 
Rooney is over the top and ridiculous, as is Brian Bremer, who plays the robotic Pino. The effects around a robot toy Pino were neat. The only other actor I want to call out here is William Thorne. He played Derek and is one of the most awkward child actors I've ever seen. All of his facial expressions are hysterical. I'm not sure how Silent Night, Deadly Night has jumped from two killer brothers to a robotic toy AI who murdered people with toys. Toymaker feels like a movie that Silent Night, Deadly Night was slapped onto for brand recognition. Maybe there's a reasonable explanation if I watch three and four. Next year, listeners. Next year. Silent Night Deadly Night 5 Toymaker is a fun time. It's entertaining schlock. If you've exhausted all the better holiday horror, give it a shot. Fun fact, Mickey Rooney condemned the first movie in the series for tainting Christmas. What a hypocrite. Number 7. Top 3 Little Known Reasons Why Stripe from Gremlins is a Jerk I had the pleasure of watching Gremlins at the in-laws for Christmas. I didn't even recommend it, a true Christmas miracle. It's been a while since I've seen the original. I champion the sequel every chance I get. During my watch, I noticed some things that had never stuck with me before. Please enjoy this clickbait list. Top three little known reasons why Stripe from Gremlins is a jerk. Number three, while leaving the Peltzer residence, Stripe blows his nose on the curtains. The little devil could have just hopped out of the house but Stripe specifically delays his escape to look the Peltzers in the eyes and blow his disgusting snot on the curtains. Number two. At one point in the film, Billy is flat on his back due to being useless and stupid. Stripe is right next to him and could easily fatally wound Billy with his sharp claws. Instead of doing this, Stripe lightly scratches Billy's chest. Why? To destroy Billy's cardigan. The scratch is so light, it only goes through the sweater and doesn't even pierce Billy's undershirt. Come to think of it, that cardigan was hideous. Stripe did Billy a favor. Number one. While at the movie theater, Stripe's friend asks him for milk duds two separate times. Stripe leaves the theater in search of candy. He finds a huge stash in which milk duds are clearly visible. Stripe doesn't snatch any milk duds for his friend. Stripe practically goes out of his way to not pick up some sweet, chocolatey, caramel-filled duds. What a jerk. That's a wrap. A full unwrap of your late Christmas present. Blank is the Killer 61, Parking Peril, Devilish Insanity, and Fatal Toys. I hope you enjoyed it and had a great December. I'm surprised I found more holiday horror that's actually worthy of recommendation. Here's hoping I find even more next year. If you dug the ep, leave a rating and or review on iTunes. That would be the most amazing present. Thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast. Check out other shows on the network like Director Showdown. Episode 62 will be up on January 12th. Until then... Don't open any mysterious gifts left on your porch unless you know exactly who put them there, especially if they are for Derek. Someone hates that kid.